Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, I'm here with Jeremy Robert Johnson, who is... Um, one of the strongest voices in the bizarro fiction movement, dark horror, um, horror literature, um, his classifications are kind of all over the place, um, because his work is that good. Um, we're going to talk today about Entropy and Bloom, which is his latest short story collection, which is kind of a best of collection that features stories that were in both of his short story collections um we live inside you and angel just apocalypse which i have reviewed both on my blog before i've read most of these stories three times (laughs) because (laughs) several of them i read when they were originally published in cemetery dance dark discoveries that kind of thing and then each time they were collected and when I got this book, the new one, Entropy and Bloom, I, my original intention was to just read the new novella. And then uh, I just opened the book and started rereading everything, and I read it cover to cover. So uh, even though I had read the stories a couple times before. So um, in, in the sense of fairness, I just should explain that uh, Jeremy and I used to be pretty much neighbors in Portland, like around the corner from each other. Uh, True. And um, I've run into him when he was getting his son haircuts. So um, (laughs) I have a lot of affection for Jeremy the person, not just Jeremy the writer. However, um, you'll find as this interview goes on, I am being completely sincere and loving the shit out of this stuff. Uh, so let's get into it, Jeremy. So, um, what's the story behind how, and what we'll do is we'll, we'll talk for 10 minutes, um, and try to stay spoiler free. And then, although it's a short story collection, so I'm I'm not too worried about that, but, um, how did this project come about? Um, I mean, a lot of these stories have been collected before. Yeah, it was just, um, it was one of the many, kind of weird side uh, side effects of Skullcrack City really taking off and, and uh, reaching people. And uh, for a while, there were a lot of folks in uh, New York at different publishing houses reading Skullcrack City and uh, trying to figure out why people were reading that book and then contacting me and seeing if I was planning on writing any, any uh, sequels or other titles. So um, as part of that, you know, um, an editor at Nightshade Books contacted me and said, hey, you know, um, I'm wondering what you're doing next, and I'm also wondering if you have any interest in getting your short work um, out to a much broader market and out in hardcover for the first time and kind of having your um, short work serviced uh, more broadly in the in the print market. Um, because sometimes, you know, with uh, Lightning Source and Amazon, it's been, they've had an odd couple of years. And so there's been times where both, the print editions of Angel Dust Apocalypse and We Live Inside You have been weirdly um, temporarily unavailable and things like that as they're trying to squish everybody over to create space. 
And so I thought, oh, you know, sure, those um, collections have done what they were kind of kind of do, and it was time to see if we could reach a new audience with it. So I bit and said, yeah, let's, uh, you know, I don't have another novel in the bag yet, but let's definitely roll on the collection. And, and I said, you know, would you mind if we did just kind of a, a, a greatest hits compilation where I'll go through them, we'll put in all the uh, most popular stories, and then I'll throw a new novella in there because I want um, longtime readers to be more excited about this book, you know, especially people who already have all the uh, work in pre-existing forms. And uh, he said, of course, yeah, please get us a novella. And uh, so I wrote Sleep of Judges, and that ended up being almost 30% of the book now is uh, new, and then the rest is, is uh, you know, what's ostensibly, or at least from a reader's point of view, my, my best uh, short stuff. And it's been awesome so far. It's uh, been out there in all the stores, and the hardcover edition is really lovely. And it's my first time having my name on a on a dust jacket, which you know, as a book nerd, was kind of cool. So, um, yeah, it was just them them seeing a need and hoping they could find a way to put my weird stuff out in uh, in the mainstream market. So far, it's it's been really cool. So I'm gonna look at the table of contents, and we're gonna kind of go through some of it. The primary focus that I try to work look at when I'm talking to authors for these bonus features that I do on my blog is to talk about the process of writing because most of the people that uh, subscribe, for example, to my YouTube channel are, are a lot of writers and um, people that kind of get into that kind of thing. So we'll talk a lot about that. But first and foremost, um, uh, introduction by Brian Evenson. Did you totally geek out on that? I mean, that's oh awesome. my gosh, yeah, I still can't believe it happened. You know, it was one of those things where, um, you know, his to me his his short fiction is um, is magic. Like I, I genuinely, I, I go through a lot of my favorite writers and I, I look at their at their short work and their long work and I I take highlighters to it and I analyze it and I try to break it down and understand how they do what they do and and. Brian's stuff just has this weird kind of alchemy that I I can't I can't even crack. Like it, even if I wanted to exploit some of the tools and techniques he uses, um, you know, the only thing I've really found that I can lean on consistently is how often he uses the word maybe uh, or possibly, and and I think that really helps set up the eeriness and the um, unstable realities in his work. Um, but yeah, so you know, I was I was a huge fan from back when. You know, uh, uh, Last Days was was this surprise hit on the uh, Shoplines message board. So that first edition was out, and, and people were saying, uh, you know, and it was people I took really seriously, like Ellen Datlow and, and Peter Straub, and they were saying, you got to check out this Evanson guy. He's amazing, and, and uh, he was, and so I've just been following him since then, and, and uh, yeah, I totally geeked out. I mean, I'm geeking out right now, so... Right. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing, and, and to have it be such a kind... Um, introduction to and to kind of perfectly set that up and and the fact that the last sentence of the introduction is like this perfectly evansonian thing about a questionable identity and being altered by the act of reading and stuff was, was just i adored the whole thing so i i can't thank him enough you know yeah um my favorite uh evanson shorts uh short story is any corpse um mm -hmm. so, yeah and um and ba and one of the reasons why i bring that one up is because um in style and tone, um, I, it, it reminded me of your work too. So, um, Oh, well, thanks. I was just going to say that's, that's one of those that's, uh, was extra. It was just like, okay, it's like, he's already great, 
at doing slam dunks. And on that one, he was like, well, on this one, I'm going to do a triple twist and use this totally weird linguistic kind of alien approach to tell this story too. And I was just so impressed by that one. Yeah. 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 I love it. So sorry to geek out on on Evans, but uh, he wrote the introduction to this book. Um, Yeah. So, um, yeah. League of Zeros is uh, now, why did you pick that story to go first? Um, um, I think it's just tradition. Like it was, uh, for a lot of people, it was their, their kind of gateway drug, their first, uh, first taste of bizarro fiction back in the, in the day, you know, just when the term was being coined, Angel Dust Apocalypse was, was doing the rounds, you know, in 2006, that was its big period. And so, so for a lot of people, that was the first, you know, quote, bizarro story they, they'd read. And then, um, you know, it's also probably my most widely published, you know, as far as number of countries, um, a number of languages it's been translated into and magazine appearances and all that. So just one of those things where it, it had more of a life than I ever expected for it to have. And then, um, you know, also I think the publisher was keen on it, uh, Nightshade or the editor, just because it ties into Skullcrack City. Mm-hmm. So you'll notice, you know, there's a skull on the cover of the book. And then the very first story is tied into Skullcrack City. And then the very final piece is maybe tied into Skullcrack City. So so they definitely were interested in, in um, trying to ride that wave with the popularity of the novel. Okay, so you beat me to uh, one of the questions that I had about League of Zeros because I, I wasn't quite – I thought it was connected to Skullcrack City. Now, is this – has the germ of Skullcrack City come – from that story in the beginning? Because that's one of your older works. So has Skullcrack City been... Uh, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but Skullcrack City's been floating around since that short story kind of came out, right? Yeah, it was actually... It was something I was supposed to write in uh, between 2006 and 2007. And uh, that year, instead, I got a job working for the bank and I got uh, my first home. And those things kind of wiped out um, my writing tempo and all that. So it was going to be uh, two different pieces that were tied into pre-existing short stories, um, Extinction Journals, the novella being tied into the short story Sharp Dressed Man at the End of the Line, and then um, Skullcrack City being tied into League of Zeros, because those were the two most popular uh, short stories from Angel Dust Apocalypse. So the idea was, okay, let's, let's tie these in and, and get them out there right away. Uh, during the kind of burgeoning years of Bizarro, but that didn't happen. Instead, uh, you know, it was five years before I even got another short fiction collection out. And then, you know, another four years after that, before my wife was, you know, saying, hey, you've got the time now, you know, you're working as a stay-at-home dad, but our our son is finally off at uh, uh, kindergarten, so let's get it going. And, uh, you know, really dove in and finally took a crack at Skullcrack City. Well, right, and it's just speaking personally as somebody who every time I saw you around Portland would be like, when is Skullcrack City going to be done, buddy? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah no, I, I got harassed for years on that because there, it, I, I actually, uh, I think in the back of Siren Promised, uh, the paperback edition, there's actually a, a description of, you know, Skullcrack City 2006 coming soon. <laughs> right. Uh, so I did, that, I did that to myself, and I was talking about it in uh, interviews, and I really thought it was something that was going to be uh, uh, written that early. And I, in retrospect, I'm thankful that it, it wasn't because the ideas I had for the original version of Skullcrack City um, 
were a lot more pastiche and a lot more um, weird without the same kind of uh, heft that I wanted the story to have. And, and so, honestly, I'm, I'm glad it took that long uh, because it turned it into a very different book than the original one that I had planned. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, that's happened before. I mean, Quentin Tarantino was... I mean, I don't know how long he was talking about Inglorious Bastards. Um, right, right. And, um, which, I mean, I would still love to see the miniseries script version that he wrote um, for, what was it? I think his plan was for Adam Sandler and Eddie Murphy, which is just totally... Oh, my God. <laughs> but, <laughs> bizarro, but whatever. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, League of Zeros, I, I think, um, was a perfect choice for the beginning because of, of, of its connection. I hadn't thought about the fact that it, it does kick off Angel Dust, right? Um, yep. Yep, okay. And um, um, so my next question is about the Oarsman. Um, the Oarsman is um, absolutely one of my favorite of your pieces. I read it when it was in Dark Discoveries, and, of course... We live inside you, so this is my third time reading it. And even though I knew what basically that it it was science fiction, but really it's a tone piece, right? Yeah, I think more so. I mean, the 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 concept, the science fiction concepts are there, but it's I think more about the tone of just being in the in the head of uh, uh, you know psychopath, right? Who happens outer space <laughs> during the apocalypse. Right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was it was more about that that kind of uh, feeling to it. Well, and, and certainly there was a part of me that was like, oh, I'd like to see Jeremy in space more. But um, uh, the the oarsman, I think. Um, I, well, the Buddhist ideas, I think, did they, did those come first before the 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 setting? Did you want to explore the Buddhist ideas in the story, or, or did the setting come? Yeah, that was a that was a pre-existing uh, idea I had just about the idea of you know what happens if you weaponize empathy because I'd been uh, uh, staying up late and and um, right before bed my wife liked to read these uh, uh, basically Buddhist books to me and and I was getting this really weird sense of of both. Uh, empathy, but also this kind of existential dread about, okay, well, you know, beyond the ego and beyond the self, you know, there's not that much importance to human existence. And, uh, you know, the more I thought about the universality of the human race, the more, the less my identity made sense and the more, and so it was, I was already kind of obsessed with this idea of empathy as being dangerous as the idea, the idea of us all being connected essentially negating the need for human life or even the desire for it. Um, and so that concept was always there. And then um, I got contacted by Hernan Ortiz and Viviana Trujillo that run the uh, Fractal Conference down in Medellin. And they said, we'd like you to write a piece about your vision for the future um, to be read at the conference and, um, you know, on the on our opening night. And so I said, okay, um, and then they said future, so I thought futuristic. Oh, okay, let's let's uh, start this in uh, outer space, kind of looking down on the globe as a whole, you know. And so that that was the the onus for adding adding that in. Mm. Well, that's cool. I didn't I didn't know that origin of the story. It's definitely always been one of my favorites of yours. Um, uh, I just love the the tone of it. Um, 
all together. Now, after that, and I'm not going to do every single story, but um, the gravity of Benham Falls, um, what was interesting for me is, I'm positive I've read it before, but because um, I remembered you doing a ghost story before, but um, this time, this was one that a story impacted me more this time than, than other times that I'd read it in the past. And I think I just connected to the, um, and don't take this the wrong way, but the pastiche of it. Um, because I think that um, you're definitely playing the power chord, as it were, of the ghost story, but I think you're doing it very effectively, and I think the story felt very comfortable to me this time as a ghost story. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, that's how I kind of felt about the story this time. Yeah, that one was, de- I mean, it was it was written overtly, you know, to kind of um, be in the mode of a ghost story. I was, at a, I was at a ghost story camp that Elizabeth Engstrom was uh, hosting, where we talked about red ghost stories and and uh, we were out near a lot of the territory where they filmed uh, Stand By Me in Oregon. And I went fishing off of a train trestle and all that. And then later that night, hand wrote, you know, 19 pages of a ghost story to be read by candlelight. And so, yeah, it was it was a very traditional story, I, you know, um, that just happened to have some some crime elements and uh but as far as the actual the haunting aspect of it, and then I'm I'm a sucker for ghost stories. It's, it's that's one of my absolute favorite kind of horror tropes is is the haunting, and the you know the business that's been left unfinished and the corpses resting there and the wrath and all that. I I just I've always been a sucker for that since I think I saw the Changeling when I was a little tiny kid, um, and so yeah, it's very that one was very specifically meant to be working in the mode of, of, you know, the ghost story. It's, um, I was gunning for that, you know? Right. Now, one story that impacted me, and I didn't remember this story, so I know it was collected before because, uh, it's in here. (laughs) Um, but, uh, Snowfall was one that I didn't remember, and maybe it didn't hit me, um, before, but, and this might be a little bit of a spoiler, so warning for people who... Well, this is actually a huge spoiler for the, for the short story, but um, <laughs> I, I want to talk about the creation of this one because it's from the beginning of the idea of us talking, I wanted to talk about Snowfall. Um, I'm correct in assuming that that kid is in a, in a house surrounded by basically a wildfire in the story. Um, or no, it's or, a or am I reading that wrong? Clear detonation. No, it's it's a. Um, I I got the idea for that story after seeing those um, images of um, you know after the bombs dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and there were those uh, images of the the kind of the blast figures on the wall where the um, you know the concrete was scorched, but the um, the white imprint of where the the bodies were standing was left on the wall. Um, yeah. And so that image stuck with me forever. And so actually, um, you know, the idea is that it's the, it's the first snow of basically nuclear winter that this kid is experiencing. Ah, uh, well, you know, it's funny cause I just, I just wrote a wildfire book. So, um, wow. <laughs> so I, I guess that's where my brain went to. And, and, um, the way I kind of read the story was, um, I read it as he was, 
in this house and the fire was coming and and he didn't understand what was happening. So it's funny, I had a totally different reading of the story. Uh, both stories are good. Um. <laughs> yeah, I think with either either version of that ultimately has the same um, the same landing, which is that you know it's it's just um, that perspective of total innocence in the face of catastrophe, right. um, and how it can be interpreted differently. You know, as as something almost beautiful when in fact it's devastating. You know? Yeah. See, because my brain and and it's partially because I just finished this novel that has a wildfire in it. Um, I, I just my immediately thought of ash falling and um, that and the snowfall in my mind was what was ash. It's just funny because uh, that's definitely what, what I got out of it right yeah. or wrong. Yeah. So um, okay, so uh, now this is a big one is when Cesara stirs because uh, and I was lucky enough to see the film on the big screen at uh, Horrible Imaginings here in San Diego. Oh, awesome! Yeah. And, um, uh, wow, uh, the, what a great adaptation. Um, it's funny because, um, when I, when they announced that they were making this short film, I knew I had read the story, but it, it wasn't one of the stories that immediately came to my mind when I thought of the collection, because I think of stories like the Oarsmen, whatever, so I, as soon as they announced it, I went back and reread When Cesara Stirs, and <laughs> I was like, what are they going... Like, they picked this? <laughs> how are they going to do this? Um, yeah, I felt the same way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I was going to ask. It was like, were you as mystified as the rest of us <laughs> as to how yeah, they were going to do this? Those guys, they, they, came at it, they came at it with such enthusiasm you know they they sent me a message and said hey can we talk about this we're really interested in in optioning uh you know the story and i was hesitant i've been through a lot of different uh options and stuff almost making it the principal photography as a hollywood film and and uh like snowfall has been optioned five times and never actually uh you know made it there but it's had animatics produced and score work done and storyboards and and so I just I was feeling a little bit jaded, but these guys got on the phone with me, and we spent 45 minutes talking about the thing and Cronenberg's The Fly, and uh, you know all of Hen and Lauder's movies, and our affinity for Fangoria and Gorezone growing up, and and all the great practical effects we saw in the theaters, and so and I just felt an instant kinship with these guys, and I, I kind of understood, okay, this is this is a story that could be a kind of showpiece for them, and and. Uh, and so they, they talked me into it, basically, because I wasn't sure it was the kind of thing they could work on film, given everything that happens in it. And then they went off, and I was I was sure they weren't going to film that ending, and then they did. So, and as a result, I mean, that was, uh, they, they nailed the ending, too. They made it more effective than, than the book, in my opinion. Uh, you know, and that's why I'm glad you got to see it on the big screen, because that was uh, so much fun. I got to see it at H.P. Lovecraft, and then again at the... Um, uh, the Overlook Film Festival up at the Timberline Lodge, and watching that short with an audience is is a uh, really fun because especially if you know what beats are coming and what happens at the end, right. you can uh, watch them recoil. And that the last three minutes uh, are just a roller coaster with the audience. They Anthony did a, a, a kind of perfect job, and and Josh Maruz, the edited it, just they just nailed the way uh, that flows. And and the audience, you know, you, they moan, they laugh. 
they think it's going to be okay, then it gets even worse. And it's just uh, it was so fun to watch them kind of get manipulated by by their, those guys' work. And, and Ryan Shadley's effects were just, you know, considering he had a budget of $5,000, his effects were a miracle in my book. So, so we've been really, really happy with how that turned out. Yeah, we had a really cool, um, because it was at the Film Fest, we had four people in a row, sitting in a row, who had read the story. <laughs> and Oh, yeah. Right. I was uh, like Anthony Trevino, myself, Ross Lockhart, and um, we're just, we're all, you know, you know the scene we're thinking of. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, just knowing what was coming, we were just cracking up, um, you know, watching the reaction in, in the room because it was a packed house and it was great. And uh, it was really cool, too, because the movie that they showed right after it, The Disappearance of Willie Bingham, if you ever get a chance to see that. Oh, show, yeah, that, that one's awesome. Yeah, I, I got to be a... Um, a little bit of an aficionado on the short circuit oh. as a result of following Susser's around. And so, right. so yeah, um, it's, there's some crazy good work happening in short film, you know, and, 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 uh, it's nice to have my eyes open to that. And, and yeah, Bingham's pretty crazy. Great. You know? Yeah. And so it's funny because, um, we were just after Susser stirs and Willie Bingham back to back, we were just floored. Um, after those two, and um, yeah, it was really cool. So it was a really good experience for for those of us who are longtime uh, Jeremy Robert Johnson fans to uh, see that on the big screen. And uh, for know, me too, it was a total kick, man. Yeah. Well, um, so a couple other stories I want to talk to to you about in the, in the novella, and then we'll end with trigger variation. Um, but. Um, Sharp dressed man at the end of the line. I know um, this collection basically probably couldn't have happened without it, right? I mean, uh, one way or another, um, it's one of your most iconic imagery. What's funny is that the story. Uh, of course, I I love the story, but compared to a lot of your work, it's not on my list of one of my absolute favorites, but I love all the things that it inspired, including the Extinction Journals, more so than the original short story. Did you ever have any I like thought of including the Extinction Journals in its entirety, or um, I don't know, what are your thoughts on, on, on including that story in the, in the collection? It had to be there, right? Oh, it, it absolutely had to be there. You know, one of the things, you know, uh, I knew that Nightshade was kind of taking a risk doing um, Entropy and Bloom just because these books had already been out, you know, uh, Angel Dust since 2005 and We Live Inside You since 2011. And so they were taking a risk with the idea that there was going to be a market for selling these stories again and, and that there was going to be a broadened market. Um, and so I took a pretty calculated approach to... Um, what stories were selected and it was pretty much just you know originally i made a list of the six stories of my my that i actually like that i personally have an affinity for and feel like i kind of got right and then you know beyond that i was like okay well i need seven more stories on top of that and i just went through every single goodreads review and every single amazon review um and actually did a manual tally in excel of um all the times that different stories got mentioned and especially times that stories got mentioned as favorites. 
And mm. so um, Sharp Dressed Man ended up kind of being a, a slam dunk kind of standout for, for inclusion. Can I just say result. that that is a very Jeremy Robert Johnson way to, to handle that process? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also like a very disgusting, like marketing oriented, uh, you know, way to approach it. But at the same time, I, I you know, if it's going to be my first time having something in a hardcover edition out of New York, I want it to do well by the publishers, too. Right. So, so I wasn't taking any uh, risks. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was not formed by committee, but it was certainly a book that's been formed by my most enthusiastic readers, you know? Right. Um, so it's, it's 100% the favorites, except for there's one that was uh, pushed out to number 14, which was uh, called Saturn's Game. And uh, the editor actually had me switch out another story that was going to be in there called The Laws of Virulence. But um, we had too many parasite stories and we had too many stories where children die. And as a result, uh, Laws of Virulence had to be switched out for Saturn's game where the the kid doesn't die. He's just terribly traumatized. So, (laughs) you know, it was one of those things where that ended up in just because uh, it couldn't quite be the... Basically because Laws of Virulence was too nasty of a short story. So when you get an um, email that says you have too many parasite stories, does that just make you laugh? <laughs> it, it did. And I was, well, and it, it was genuinely, it was, we've got too many parasites and we have too many dead children. And, you know, he was like, obviously we want to keep Cathedral Mother. He felt that was the stronger of the stories with parasites and dead children. And so we opted in that direction. Um, but yeah, it was. I laughed for like two days, and then I and then I was a little bit disappointed though because I I um I actually I think Laws of Virulence belongs in there, but I understand where they were coming from. Uh, so, well, Cesare Sturz so, yeah. is, is a parasite story too. It sort. is, and it's, it's implied that many many people potentially die there. Pretty much everybody in the lots of children, please, you know. So yeah, um, but uh, there it's more just implied. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, um, I actually um, put this book on my paranoia shelf on Goodreads um, because a lot of the stories um, have a healthy dose of paranoia, including the the new novella and uh, Flood of Harriers, um, which I remember reading in Cemetery Dance when it when it was first published, and um, uh, that one has always created a very firm picture in my mind with the setting, um, like the being on the road, the, the rest area and, and everything. Um, so that was one that like, when I first saw the table of contents and saw what was in there, it was like immediately like, okay, even when I didn't think I was going to read it cover to cover, when I wasn't going to reread stories, I knew I was going to reread that one. Um, that story in my opinion, um, plays the suspense and paranoia very well. Was that like the the jumping off point for Flood of Harriers? The the. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I suppose the um, just the uh, just the like kind of pure fear of of being the wrong person in the wrong place at the right time, and and um, you know encountering that kind of thing and then the you know dealing with the aftermath of it and uh just that feeling of being of of thinking you have the world kind of figured out especially as a young man and then having everything unsettled you know Uh, it's a it's a really 
kind of almost ambiguous story and, and kind of really unpleasant story. You know, it's, it's, uh, just, there's, it's, it's all hard edges, but, uh, the paranoia is a huge part of that, that just constant sense of something is coming to destroy you. Um, and then mixed in with the idea that maybe, you know, there's some destruction just owed to people in general for their behavior or for the behavior of, of their tribes, you know, of, of the societies that they, or cultures that they chose to move within, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think in a lot of ways, I know Sleep of Judges, and it's not really a surprise that the story connects to Skullcrack City. I think most people realize that at this point. Um, yeah. But um, in a lot of ways, um, when I was reading, rereading, uh, when I was reading Sleep of Judges, um, I felt like you were flexing some of those same muscles. Um, but uh, just to to get into to Sleep of Judges, in, in in the sense of that, I think one of the things that you've done really well is um, expressed um, what seems to be somewhat autobiographical. <laughs> Um, sense of um, the worst case scenario. So, like, a lot of your characters, I've found, are really... The impetus for a lot of the suspense is automatically the characters kind of go to worst case scenario, right? And do a really good job of spelling out ahead of time for the reader, like... um, like basically setting out a path of this awful thing could happen <laughs> and probably will or and whether it does or whether it doesn't you've laid the groundwork for us to think about it um and i don't know to me that is a is something that you do really well and um sleep of judges it seems like um that seemed like the jumping off point for Sleep of Judges, besides the fact that it seemed you're obviously connecting it to Skullcrack City, but um, that that fear, that paranoia really felt to me like uh, the jumping off point for Sleep of Judges. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was that's a case where I was just exploiting actually getting burglarized, you know? It was a, it was a really easy place to draw fear from because um it's really shitty and traumatic when your uh, home gets burglarized so uh you know i experienced it as a young man i watched my parents go through it and um it didn't have the same impact on me but now having it happen to me uh as a as a husband and as a father and feeling like oh why couldn't i have stopped that and um you know watching my family deal with the emotional aftermath of that and them being unsettled and them living in a in a state of kind of fear and paranoia and not being able to help them through that necessarily or deal with it myself um having all those experiences turned into something where you know within the space of less than a year i was very ready to write the sleep of judges you know so um and so yeah i would say the first third of that is is right on the border of just being my actual experience of it, including the, the scene of the, you know, the guy running around um, terrified all over town that his home is being burglarized again and trying to set up and fortify the place. You know, um, even now I've got, you know, three locks on every window. It's, it's absurd. So uh, I'm still dealing with the aftermath of it, but sleep of judges definitely helped me to uh, kind of process that and at least put it out into the, the world and, and, uh, 
put some interesting facts about burglary in the story too, you know, that I, I didn't know until it happened to me. Well, and, and I think some, um, you know, I think a lot of times building suspense is, um, is often rungs in a ladder, right? You, you have to, you have to create a platform to take those steps where you're going up, 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 up towards the suspense. And I think some of the things that work really well in Sleep of Judges, um, the conversation with the police officer where he, you know, he's basically telling the character um, how, wow, look how easy it was to get into your house. I'm surprised this didn't happen before, right? Mm-hmm. And is very laissez-faire about, like, you know, oh, wow, just look at how easy it was to get in. Then, um, you know, and and then basically balanced with some of the scenes that I thought were really good of um, where you kind of, you know, break the tension with some of the humor of the the letter to the Neighborhood Watch Association about, hey, guys, you know, let's have a go team moment and (laughs) and do this. (laughs) Right, and I don't yeah. know how much of that was autobiographical, but um, but a, a lot of it, a lot. Of it, I, there might have really have been a note uh, uh, to the burglars left on the back of my house when I was out buying security goods, and and might really have been a bunch of stacked up brambles and rebuilt <laughs> fences, and and uh, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of psychotic shit that happens in the beginning of that story that. Was was easy for me to write, so <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and some of the later stuff that you know, when it veers into um, um, you know, possibly kind of supernatural setup, I yeah uh, did have two or three kind of weird things happen after the burglary, and obviously I'm already on you know five alarm situation and freaking out. But we had some other weird things happen in the neighborhood that just that just kind of drove that, you know, uh, mm. dogs barking where there were no dogs. Uh, uh, screws being left behind my truck tires, mail being ripped up, uh, somebody uh, trying to, and, and one of the big ones, somebody tried to break into my wife's car, and I heard the alarm go off, and I ran out and actually chased them across the neighborhood until they jumped a fence, and then I realized I was about to jump the fence to chase them, and it was this huge moment where I thought to myself, what are you going to do if you catch them, and what happens if someone else sees you on their property and just shoots you? Well, you're trying to chase this guy. Like, what do you, you're a family man. Why are you out here doing psychotic shit chasing this guy? You know? And so all of that kind of added up. And I was like, this is, uh, first of all, I need to check myself. Stop acting like a fucking lunatic. Secondarily, I should probably write this all down because <laughs> there's this, definitely a story here, you know? Right. And so um, were the, the connections to Skullcrack City there, um at the beginning of the idea or did that kind of, did you just, did that kind of, come they, they were actually there right from the beginning. I just, I liked the idea of, um, you know, I, Skullcrack City will never have a direct sequel. Uh, that's borderline impossible unless it wants to get in really weird alien territory, you know? Um, but I like the idea of, you know, the Voktang and, and, uh, you know, these kind of two battling powers, always being out there as its kind of own weird mythology that would allow for telling different types of horror stories. Um, and so I'd love to still go back and tell like a straight LA, um, you know, noir story involving some of the elements of Skullcrack City, or in this case, tell 
a you know kind of a story of literary suburban paranoia, but have it be involved in that. Um, and so it's something that I just think is is interesting and fun to touch back on because it's it's you know it's that essential thing of just good versus evil and, and the balance of that. Uh, it's a very archetypal kind of setup, and it's a mythology that I feel like has some fun elements. So. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that's cool about Sleep at Judges is that I didn't, um, when I finished reading it, I didn't realize how long it was. Um, I, 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 because when I, when I closed the book, my thought was, oh, I thought that was a novella. And I didn't even real, realize, because I was reading it on my work commute, like I didn't realize how many pages had passed. And yeah, that thing's 25,000 words. It's, it's, uh, Bigger than I even had expected for it to be. So yeah, and it just it just rips. So um, um, before we get into uh, trigger variation and um, basically, what I think is 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 really cool is that I, I think it's awesome that Nightshade has given you an opportunity to reflect on these stories and to put them out to a wider audience and collect them in this way. Um, because I think that as much as we live inside you and angel dust apocalypse both have, um, they have a really good feeling as collections that are very specific that make the stories work together. But I think that's true here too. And in that sense, I think it makes it a very unique, um, project. I I wonder if you have, any feelings about how the stories work together from beginning to end as a collection compared to those other two? That makes sense. Um, I, I actually feel like it's they got the most um, variation just because I was able to pull from both uh, collections. And like I said, I did it in a very calculated way, but the, it also meant mapping out like, okay, which of these obsessions uh, that I have are represented in each story and, which stories involve the death of a family member, which stories involve drug addiction, which stories involve parasites, which stories involve the end of the world. And so it was uh, a matter of, you know, um, and then which ones do I feel are the strongest? So we make sure there's no lulls throughout the flow of the book. Um, It was the hardest one to find a proper order for um, just because I wanted to make sure it it really landed with people. And so um, I'm, since I worked the most on, making this layout function. Um, I, I really like it and I, I think it might be the strongest. The only thing that becomes apparent to me is it definitely, it lays bare my obsessions. Um, uh, there's certain things that I, that are definitely my, my things I can't let go of, you know, uh, like I get that same feel when I read any author, when I read a ton of their work, you start to see that repetition of, okay, here are the things that, that they can't let go of, you know, and, and Entropy and Bloom definitely <laughs> makes that more transparent than ever before, uh, probably because it has the least amount of, of kind of off-kilter, experimental, bizarro stuff uh, versus uh, the other two, which had, had some really weird out-there pieces um, and more flash fiction involved um, in, the, in the flow. These are very much just kind of uh, straightforward stories. So well, and I, think, I don't know. I think, I'm, I'm pretty stoked on how it turned out. Yeah, and I think the setup um, with having League of Zeros be first, and obviously Sleep of Judges last, it 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 shows a very different Jeremy Robert Johnson from 
from the first story to the last, um, you know, obviously the same person, but a lot of growth um, in style and, um, you know, and basically, you know, uh, the the man behind the stories, at least in, in my eyes, it does. So, yeah, I mean, you, you go from you go from uh, young punk on drugs trying to get attention to family man trying to hold it all together <laughs> i didn't even think about that that's a very direct like line of um uh change yeah. in my life that's, yeah that's yeah. basically well league of zeros i was 21 or 22 when i wrote that so you know almost two decades difference it's interesting all right so that would have been a great place to end but i have to get onto one of my obsessions um all right <laughs> So, um, and the reason I save this for last is because, um, and this is going to take me doing a little explaining for the uninitiated, but um, there's a story in there, Trigger Variation, which um, uh, was in an anthology that I edited, so um, that maybe ten of us have read, but I had really good intentions. Um, (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing then. Uh, and probably could have done a better... I would de- definitely know how I could do a better job today, but um, I'm still glad that we did the anthology because a bunch of really cool stories came out of it that ended up in other people's collections. Um, and one of those stories was Trigger Variation, which was really interesting because I have a very unique relationship to that story because... And we can get into it a little bit, but um, the story, for those who who may not have read it, um, is about a kind of a cult, a, a, a offshoot of straight edge called Endliners. And why that story was such a weird one for me was because in the nineties, I was definitely, I was a part of a movement within that kind of sprung out of, um, activism that I was a part of called Hardline which a lot of people associate with straight edge, although we were very specifically telling people we were not straight edge. But there were a lot of things in trigger variation that made me very uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, when oh, me I, too, dude. <laughs> yeah. When I read it, because um, at the time, um, I was still very sensitive about Hardline and very protective of you know, my place in in that movement. And it was funny because when that story came in, I almost felt like I couldn't judge it accurately. I had my editing partner, Gabriel, basically, I said, you have to tell me if this is good or not. (laughs) Because I'm too close to the material. Like, the story seems really good to me. I, like, really like the ideas. But the endliners almost seemed like a bizarro world like an opposite, like a like a positive negative end of the battery version of this movement that I was a part of. So I almost felt like, and I didn't. We didn't know each other very well then because I hadn't moved to Portland. We had only met online. I almost felt like, is this guy fucking with me? <laughs> is this guy <laughs> intentionally sending me a story that is like analyzing me? <laughs> Right, right, right. Oh, because of the hardliner connection. I even, you know, I was aware of that, but it very much, um, you know, 
I was more familiar with you at that point as being just, you know, very much focused on the on uh, being straight edge and working with animal activism and only found out later about the, the hardline stuff. But I'd known about the hardliners and also my primary inspiration um, was actually uh, these guys I hung out with in Olympia um, and in Seattle when I was up there at Evergreen State College who were um, ostensibly just these you know, that didn't do any drugs, wouldn't, wouldn't touch a Dr. Pepper, would never go near a beer, walked across the street to get away from cigarette smoke. But they would go out at night and they would look for opportunities for violence, whether that was at a concert and they were finding ways to hurt people at concerts or whether it was, you know, going out looking for, um, well, in Olympia, it wasn't hard, going out looking for Nazis, like actual neo-Nazis. Um, and so... It was kind of that realization of, okay, everybody here is still looking for an escape, um, regardless of whether or not you eschew one form of escape or another, everyone's looking for a way to either intensify reality or transcend reality. Um, and so I just thought to myself, what if you extended this to a, the most radical worst case scenario, you know, and then added in the, the narcissism of young men who are addicted to lifting weights and fighting, you know? Right. Well, um, and what was funny for me, and one of the reasons why when I read the story, when I said, like, I couldn't look at it objectively, was because, for me, I, I was hardline, and I was very militant. I was very militant about all my beliefs, veganism, animal rights, all those things. However, I wasn't a, a very violent person. And most of the people that I knew in hardline, well we definitely believed in kind of a Malcolm X style of fighting for our beliefs. Like we weren't violent, like the characters in your story. Right. Yeah. And I felt like that was an important dividing line. And the other big, um, you know, because when I was writing it, I did take a look at the, the hardliner stuff. And, and so I, that's one of the reasons in the story that the leader of the movement actually goes to the zoo and kills animals. I wanted there to be that strong division and for that to make everyone uncomfortable and that, you know, they were realizing like, oh, wait, this, this guy doesn't have a real set ethos. This isn't something we can believe in. Mm-hmm. We have just all, because we're having a good time and we're getting kicks, we have followed a sociopath, basically, right. you know. Well, um, and, and, and so I felt that was an important dividing line, so people wouldn't think it was it was like an attack on the the hardliners or straight edge as a whole, you know. Right. Well, and that was why I think, even though eventually I came to to appreciate the story and like it, um, when I first read it, I had a hard time like separating myself. <laughs> oh, for uh, sure. From it, even though I I had been out of hardline for years and. Um, you know, and, and it's funny because when you mentioned the the whole escape factor and how everybody's looking for escape, um, I don't know if I ever told you this story before, but um, in the very early days that I was involved in the hardline movement, um, a, a good friend of mine who was the guy who recruited me, and we're actually still friends, but um, who had basically recruited me to the hardline movement, there was one time he called me about setting up some protest or something and he called and I was watching Star Trek The Next Generation when he called me and he said a line to me that that we've never, we still laugh about it 
where he said, it's okay, Hardline allows for relaxation to avoid burnout. So it's okay that you're watching Star Trek. <laughs> so have, have your track, dude. You can skip this protest. You need some track. Well, we still had to go to the protest, but we could watch Star Trek at night this to yeah, avoid, yeah. avoid burnout. And <laughs> um, now this guy burned out of Hardline very quickly soon after. Um, and one of the thi- things that we joked about was that um, the... Uh, the fact that he was thinking that much about how to avoid burnout was one of the reasons why he was heading straight towards it. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyways, and the reason why I tell that funny story is, just, is that I get some of the the aspects of trigger variation where um, the story is very much about how um, everybody is in a situation, even when they get into something that they think is outside of society, um, they're they're all looking for escape in different ways, right? And yeah, yeah, and then and and I think for that reason the story works. But I just thought it'd be funny to at the end of this talk about because I never mentioned to you before how uncomfortable that story made me when I first read it. Um, I always I always wondered because you never really specifically mentioned it, and I thought I I thought it was a risk even sending it to you guys. And I was like, well, this is the story I wanted to tell, but I. I I had, I had hopes that it wouldn't make you uncomfortable, you know. Well, um, well, it did, but it was okay. <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, I think it was a, it worked for. It was really good for the collection, and in the end, I had to put myself, you, you know, my personal feelings away from it, and and just say, um, you know, is the story good? Is the story not? You know, and um, yeah. and. But in a lot, in my main concern all along for for my aspect of it was, are people going to think that he's talking about hardline that all hardliners are violent that the message is that hardliners are violent? But then what I think what you mentioned about like the zoo and those things that eventually by the second time I read the story through because I had to read it so many times to make sure I wanted to to use it. Um, was that I came to the conclusion that no, this is definitely the not actually. This is a polar opposite of Hardline, you know. And, yeah, uh, no, it's 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 bonkers, dude. It's it's a it's a radical extremity uh, beyond any of the pre-existing punk movements, and it also. Um, well, I'm not saying that scene. we weren't bonkers either. But, right, you know, right, right. But but come uh, on. <laughs> And that there's, is, there's not that, that Cody says is uh, from the Warriors too. The scene where the leader's giving a speech, and I remember he just Cody sent me back a handwritten annotation uh, right after the end of the guy's speech, where he's like, "Are you sure you're not going to have him yell? Can you dig it?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh shit, you called me out, dude." Right. Well, hey, um, Jeremy, we've been on for an hour, and I want to let you get back to your evening. But um, I really appreciate uh, being able to talk to you about the collection. Um, I, and I'm really excited for whatever novel you can't tell us about um, that you're working on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's two, two projects, so um, there's there's surprises coming up pretty quick, actually. Ooh, two projects, excellent. Yep. Um, so, is there anything else you want to end with about um, Entropy and Bloom? 
No, just uh, to say thanks to everybody who's checking it out and uh, that the paperback comes out uh, October 10th now. We have an official date for it. So uh, for anybody who uh, has read both the old collections and is just waiting for a chance to check out uh, The Sleep of Judges on the Cheap, that will be landing October 10th. All right. Awesome. All right. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Jeremy. And uh, Hopefully we'll talk when the novel comes out. So. Yeah, man. That'd be great. All right, thanks, man.